want to thank the priest team for being used as his instruments this morning. I want to begin by a word of warning and caution. From scripture we discover that Bible says, let him that thinketh, he standeth, take heed lest he fall. When we feel strongest is when we are most vulnerable. And very often we see a mountaintop experience followed by the valley. This morning, notwithstanding how wonderful you look, how well-dressed you are, and how wonderful you sang, I was reminded this week that the devil comes to church. He doesn't take time off. He doesn't say, it's communion Sabbath, so let me take a break today. In fact, all week he was preparing for this experience because he wants to ensure that just in case you have a mountaintop experience, he is ready to execute his valley strategy. Before I share the word today, I just want to invite each of us in our own hearts to pray. If for any reason for any reason at all notwithstanding you would have sung and prayed if you, if you have harbored envy or jealousy or malice in your hearts it means that the devil is here and he doesn't belong here but he can't leave unless you ask him to. And you don't have the authority to drive him out. There's only one commander that he responds to. And that is Jesus. So we thank God for his blood today. And by the authority of his word, we want this place to be totally saturated with his presence. If there's a remote, I'll be glad if I can get it. If not, I will depend on my technical team to assist me. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Eternal Father, it is in you that we live and move and have our being, and without you we are nothing. We confess this today, and we depend totally on you, to take full control in Jesus' name. I've entitled our brief message for today, The Communion Cycle. And we are really seeking to answer this simple question. Communion, is it a means or an end? A means or an end? 
I want us to go back to the very beginning, long before the name Seventh-day Adventist was chosen. It was in a particular place at a communion service. This, sorry, that a Methodist preacher by the name of Frederick Wheeler was conducting a communion service at a Christian congregation on a Sunday morning. In that congregation, visiting that day, was a lady by the name of Rachel Oakes, who was a Seventh-day Baptist. She had come to the area because her daughter had taken up a, a teaching position close by, and so she decided to get as close to her daughter as possible. At the beginning of the service, Brother Wheeler mentioned that anybody who takes part in the communion service must be willing to follow God and all his commands. She held a peace during the service and took part, but sometime later in speaking to Brother Wheeler, she said that she almost got up in the middle of the service and said, you better cover, that, cover up that communion bread and put it away. Because, and she explained the, the fourth commandment, and she explained that here we are saying that communion service means we obey all God's commands, but we are blatantly neglecting the fourth. Brother Wheeler, being a very open-minded and genuine Christian, didn't take the criticism personally, but took time to do some studies for himself. And not long after, he was convinced that the Sabbath truth was relevant for his time and shared it with his congregation. Several others were also studying around that time. And very soon, at around 1844, the name Seventh-day Adventist was chosen in 1860. At around 1844, the first group of Sabbath-keeping Adventists, meaning they, they worshipped on the seventh day, keeping the Sabbath holy, but believed in the imminent return of Jesus' second, well, Jesus' second return. And so that was the first Sabbath-keeping Adventists. But the fact is that most of the Christian world today celebrates the communion service under one name or another. There are very few distinctions. But one of the few churches that incorporates the foot-washing aspect is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In fact, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the largest denomination currently that includes the foot-washing component in the communion service. Now, the four phases of communion that I want to touch on today are briefly first phase. Phase one, face-to-face, heart-to-heart. Second phase, post-fall sacrifices. Third phase, now these are not names that you will find anywhere. These are just names that I gave to them to describe qualities. Third phase would be the Passover plus, And the fourth and final phase that we will look at is the Lord's Supper. Each phase has two features that we would want to highlight. First feature, reflection on. There is something that that phase teaches us to reflect on, that is looking back. But it also has a second feature, anticipation of, that is looking forward. 
phase one, face to face. When Adam came from the Creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental, and spiritual nature a likeness to his maker. God created man in his own image, according to Genesis 1.27. And it was his purpose that the longer man lived, the more fully he would reveal this character and image. All his faculties were capable of development. Their capacity and vigor were continually to increase. Vast was the scope offered for their exercise, and glorious the field opened to their research. Face to face, heart to heart, communion with his maker was his high privilege. This was always God's intention. In fact, when man was created, that was his single most important desire, to create a being that could commune with him face to face, that could share his passions and enjoy his perspective. I also discovered in the young adult class last week there's what we call the rank and scale of being. And just quickly, it, it basically outlines the creation week in the, in the degree of, in the order that it came, starting from the bottom, we had light, then dry land, um, the seas, atmosphere, water, then vegetation, then the sun and the moon, and then the birds and the fish. Then we had the humans, we had, well, we had small animals, large animals, and humans. And finally, we had the Sabbath. And this hierarchy is designed, it was designed to demonstrate the order of importance in the sense of control. So you notice that God gave man dominion over all that was created. But above man, we had the Sabbath. The Sabbath of itself is not something to be worshipped, but the Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord. So the Sabbath is that day that recognizes God's creative power and his redemptive power as well. And so God is above all his creation, point number one. Point number two, after God, human beings take a priority. In our world today, we see a complete reversal of this. We see now a greater emphasis on the environment. Not that it is not important, but the environment has now begun to replace the importance of human life. And the Sabbath has been thrown out altogether. The devil has been very strategic in making sure that the memory of God is obliterated from the human race so that human beings will elevate everything else other than God. And I don't mean to be comical, but we now have persons getting married to trees and persons getting married to animals. It is an insult to the Creator, and it was designed to be such. But thank God today, there are still people who recognize God as the Creator of the universe and who recognize the day that He has blessed and sanctified as a memorial of His creation. Sabbath, in its truest sense, is really about communion. It is about giving unlimited, unrestricted access to our Creator. 
we were commissioned for six days to work, but the seventh day was not to spend idly. The seventh day was to spend in communion. It anticipates that during the entire week, you are longing to meet with your creator, but duties doesn't permit you to have unrestricted access. But thank God, he gave a specific day where he designed to meet with you. He has made that appointment, and all are invited to experience it. Phase two, post-fall sacrifices. When man fell, it obviously broke the heart of God. It was a breach of trust, but it was also painful for God to recognize that he had to destroy that which he created. But the Bible says that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, long before man fell, God had determined to take man's place. Under inspiration, the Sister White mentions that angels would have volunteered to take that position. Nobody could stand the thought of the creator, the one that gave life, having to give up life to save human beings. But that is the position that God took. And Adam, for the first time, as he raised his hand to slay the lamb, innocent, spotless, it broke his heart. Because he recognized that this lamb that was about to die did nothing to deserve death. But it was his fault that this innocent lamb had to die. But that system was endeared at that time to help persons appreciate how big and significant sin is. Sin has become so trivial today that we don't recognize that every time we do it, it breaks the heart of God. And God designed that when you kill a lamb, it helps you appreciate how much it hurts God's creation. And so the sacrificial system anticipate, reflects on the hopeless condition that man found themselves in, but it anticipates the personal redeemer coming to take man's position in the future. The third phase, Passover plus. You would remember the incident. God was about to deliver the children of Israel. The plagues, nine had already fallen, and the tent was about to fall. And God admonished the children of Israel to sprinkle the door on their doorposts. To sprinkle the blood, sorry, on their doorposts. And this symbolized ultimately the blood that we just sang about that cleanses us from sin. But it was an act of faith. The blood of, insel- of itself had no salvific power. But the blood symbolized the future slaying of the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Now the Passover also was celebrated with bitter herbs. The bitter herbs represented the bitterness of the experiences that they had in Egypt when they were made to, when they were made slaves and forced to labor unwillingly. But it was also an anticipation of the Lamb that will take away the sin of the world. Of course, I want to spend 
the most time on the last phase, which is the phase that we are now currently in, the Lord's Supper. Now, in the Lord's Supper, we have to remember, as I mentioned before, that the foot washing part of it is not really practiced widely. But this part is so important. I want you to picture with me the scene. Jesus about to celebrate the Passover with his disciples personally for the last time. He desired to meet with them privately because he didn't want a big crowd. There were certain things that he wanted to share with them that he couldn't share with everybody. And he had hoped that in the right frame of mind, they would be able to receive his message. But unfortunately, the disciples were, in, were totally in the wrong frame of mind. On that day, among the disciples was a preoccupation with who would be the greatest. In fact, the rest of the disciples had heard about James and John's request and were offended by it. One had requested to sit on the right and one had requested to sit on the left of the throne in God's kingdom. The other disciples were offended. And I want us not to look solely at the disciples this morning, but to see ourselves in the disciples. I want us to imagine that for some reason, you are widely appreciated by your employer, by your company, by your work colleagues, for the quality of work that you do, for the competence that you demonstrate. But that doesn't seem to translate in the way that you are respected in the church family. For some reason, everybody in the church family is brother or sister. Now, brother or sister is nice in your, in your nuclear family. That's fine. But you have grown accustomed being referred to by your titles based on your profession. And now, all of a sudden, everybody is equal. I imagine that some of the disciples were thinking in themselves, if Jesus knew my skills, he wouldn't even think about James and John. He would definitely choose me because I, what I bring to the table is much more than what they bring to the table. And among themselves, without saying a word, Jesus read their hearts and it pained his heart because what he wanted to share with them, he couldn't share it because they were in the wrong frame of mind. How many times we find ourselves in God's presence, but in the wrong frame of mind. God has so much to say to us, but what is uppermost in our minds prevents us from receiving the message that God wants to bring to us. And Jesus was hurt, but he kept silent. Because criticizing them at that time would not have changed their minds. They had already determined what outcome they wanted, and nothing would change their minds. Jesus noticed also that their sympathy. Jesus had mentioned to his disciples that he was about to be crucified. When he said it the first time, the disciples were filled with sadness. 
But that sadness wore away so fast. Jesus was amazed. They were no longer sympathetic with the cause of Jesus. They were sympathetic with their own agendas and were determined, come what may, my position must be the prominent one. And Jesus held his peace. He bore long with them. Eventually, Jesus went into the foot washing service. And this was the breaking point for the disciples. Because it was customary that a servant would be brought and the servant would perform the role of washing the feet of the guests. But on this occasion, deliberately so, no servant was invited. It became the duty of one of the disciples to wash the other's feet. Without saying a word, all you can see are the looks. And they would look at each other, but the words were heard. Certainly not me. Never me. That is not my job. And as they looked at one another with those yes, hateful thoughts, Jesus gradually rose up, rolled up his sleeves, stooped down, and began to wash their feet. No words were spoken, but the message was clear, and the disciples got it. All of a sudden, they were so embarrassed. They knew that they, they did not want to do it, but seeing Jesus do it was a rebuke that they couldn't discard. They began to look at themselves more closely and wondered how they could be so preoccupied with themselves not to understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. For his whole ministry, Jesus declared that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He, the greatest of all, was the greatest servant of all. And he determined that his disciples must carry on that legacy. But after three and a half years, it seems as though they were no closer to understanding his philosophy than when they first began to walk with him. But as Jesus began to wash their feet, one by one, pride, envy, malice, jealousy was driven away. It was replaced by humility and genuine love and appreciation for each other. When Jesus came to Peter, Peter couldn't bear the thought of having his master wash his feet. And so he said, no, Lord, not you, not me. I cannot allow you to do this. But then Jesus said the words to Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, then you have no part with me. Now, those words triggered something in Peter. Because the one thing that Peter valued the most was his connection with his master. And the thought of having to be eternally separated from him caused him to submit. But in his submission, he went a little exuberant. He said, Lord, not my feet only. Wash my head and my... Lord, everything. 
And Jesus had to say, calm down, Peter. The feat is sufficient because it's symbolic of an entire cleansing. After completely washing his disciples' feet, Jesus made the pronouncement, Ye are all clean, but not all. Now this is the biblical basis for why it is practiced in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Jesus actually introduced it that way. He said, you call me Master and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. In other words, rightly so. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And so, it is a meaningful part of the communion service. It is the part that levels the playing field. It's the part of the communion service that helps us appreciate that the emphasis is not on being served, but on serving. It is a renewal of our cleansing. You may have been baptized, but just like you, just like a visitor at that time on his earthly journey, even after he washed his feet, would gather dust between trips. When he gets to his location, foot washing would take place. Similarly, between one communion and another, you may pick up some dust along the way, based on your interaction, based on the, the limitations of your human nature that sometimes kicks in. And so, the cleansing is necessary. But it's also an expression of our willingness to serve one another in Christ-like humility. And that is the principle that God will have us appreciate today. That we ought to serve each other. It was an opportunity for addressing jealousy and contention among the disciples. And I'm using disciples in the generic sense. They include each of us today. And also addressing pride and an air of superiority that sometimes comes into our worship and sometimes comes into our interactions and prevents God from doing what he wants to do with us and in us. Jesus said unto them, John 13, verse 10 and 11, He that is washed needeth not have to wash his... He that is washed needeth not have to wash his feet but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he, he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. Now, I want us to appreciate the significance of this text. Because what this text implies is that knowledge of somebody's bad opinion of you, knowledge of somebody's bad intentions for you, does not justify your failure to administer your servant duties to them. Jesus washed Judas' feet just like he washed everyone else's, knowing full well that Judas was his betrayer. And that's a lesson for us today in how we treat with perceived and real injustice and malice among God's people. 
sometimes you might be aware of something that was said about or something that is intended for and against you. But that knowledge does not justify treating people differently. Jesus treat, treated each of his disciples the same. Am I going back? When Jesus said those words, the disciples were alarmed. How could there be somebody here who is not clean after all that Jesus has done? And so they began to ask the question, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And one by one, Jesus was answering. The last person was John. John was actually sitting close to Jesus, leaning on Jesus. And John was pained to ask because all of the disciples began to realize that sometimes Jesus knows me better than I know myself. And they were wondering if Jesus was seeing something in them that they couldn't see. And so they were asking genuinely but hoping to get the clearance that is not me. And so after everybody asked, Peter looked at John and said, Your turn. And so John asked the question, Lord, is it I? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give the sup when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sup, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And then all of a sudden, all eyes went on Judas. And Judas got me out. <laughs> and as Judas stood there, he recognized how merciful the Savior was to him. He recognized that his cover was blown and that he is exposed. But unfortunately, remorse and repentance were not what he felt. He was determined at that point in time to carry out his mission. He, he evidently thought that if Jesus could stoop so low to become a servant and wash people's foot, feet, he definitely is not going to occupy any throne on the kingdom. And my whole plans for getting a high position out the door. So let me take the 30 pieces of silver, at least I'm getting something, and finish the job. And at, immediately after he took this up, he went out. And Jesus, well, I don't know why Jesus said what he said. But Jesus said, what you have to do? Go fast and do it. And Judas hastened, leaving Jesus' presence for the final time. It's my hope and my prayer today that nobody, after being exposed to this precious opportunity to have communion with God, would leave his presence and worse yet for the last time. But God's grace is available today and nobody present here today needs to, to feel unworthy or leave without their blessing. I want to conclude, well the fifth phase really is phase one. 
And that's why I call it a cycle. Because face to face was always God's intention. And we have to look at all these experiences of the sacrificial system and the Passover celebration and the communion service. In that sense, they are means. They are means of maintaining communication with our distant, in that sense, our distant friend. It's just like when you have a long-distance relationship and you have to rely on WhatsApp and Snapchat and Messenger or whatever medium you use to stay in touch. That works for a while, but the ultimate goal is to be reunited in their presence. And that is Jesus' goal as well. Jesus said, but I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus has a date with all of us. And he wants to keep that appointment. He wants to, to share unrestricted face-to-face -face communion with all of his children. But you have a choice in the matter. Like Judas, well, like the other disciples, you can be washed and be accepted. Or like Judas, you can reject it and walk away. Today, what will your choice be? Face-to-face -face communion with your Savior is our ultimate desire. Communion, unbroken communion, has always been God's desire. The sacrificial system, the Passover feast, the Lord's Supper, or communion service are all means to facilitate communion in a less than ideal relationship. Thank God, one day soon, we can dispense with the symbols, we can put away the mediums and enjoy face-to-face -face communion with our Creator, Redeemer, and forever friend. May God bless us.